Hello, you're listening to Just Screen It, Case Studies in Creative Distribution. I am your host, Colin Stryker, and I am not an expert in creative or self-distribution. I'm an independent filmmaker working towards making my first narrative feature, uh, a horror film entitled The Grove. So as I've been contemplating my own eventual distribution strategy, I've become sort of fascinated with the notion of self-distribution, but I've found that it's really hard with all the information that's out there to uh, really get a good idea of how it's worked for people. So I decided to start this podcast to help capture some of the experiences of those who have already been through it, uh, whether successful or otherwise, and from those experiences, help both listeners and myself better understand this really complex, crazy landscape of independent film distribution today. So each week, I'll be bringing on a filmmaker who has self-distributed or used creative or non-traditional methods to distribute their film. Uh, My hope is that future filmmakers can take the knowledge gleaned from this show and use it to make their own decisions on how to best distribute their films. So here we are, episode 10. Uh, Before getting started, I just have to say that uh, so far, I've really enjoyed doing this podcast. Um, As I state in my little intro there, uh, I'm not really an expert in indie distribution at all. uh, And my goal was always to learn right along with my listeners. And I have certainly done that. Um, I'm I'm really pleased with the variety of stories and perspectives that I've gotten on the show so far. And I hope you've been enjoying it and getting something out of it as well. Uh, Speaking of which, I have now gotten my first review from Kevin Carlock on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Kevin says, invaluable for indie filmmakers. I'm a full-time filmmaker strategizing my next $500,000 features distribution. Collins' interviews illumine the notoriously elusive and changing elements of the independent film landscape, and he's not afraid to ask his guests for specifics on how much they spent on production and on distribution, where those expenses went, how much revenue they saw and where, and what to do differently. Uh, Each indie is different and should have a tailored strategy, and Collins' guests both reflect that diversity and help filmmakers like me figure out what's most advantageous. Collins also great about highlighting commonalities across genres, budget sizes, and career goals. I've shared this podcast with several industry contacts and will continue to do so. Well done, and thank you, Colin. Uh, Well, thank you so much for that review, Kevin. Uh, It really means a lot. It's really nice to hear that I'm actually reaching some filmmakers out there. Uh, But anyway, enough for me. Um, Today, I am really excited to bring you my interview with Andrew Belware. Andrew has been making low-budget sci-fi movies for two decades, starting in the early aughts with a movie called Pandora Machine. Uh, As you might imagine, Andrew has seen a lot of changes in the world of indie distribution over that time, and it certainly shows in this conversation. Um, We cover a lot of topics here, ranging from how to pick a title for your movie to how important it is as an indie filmmaker to surround yourself with people you really get along with. Andrew is a veritable fountain of knowledge and experience here, and I really think you all are going to get a lot out of this conversation, as I surely did. One quick note, you'll note a bit of confusion in the interview over two of Andrew's movies, Android Uprising and Android Insurrection. Uh, It turns out both movies are movies he directed, but as he states in the interview and clarified in an email to me, he wasn't always in charge of the titles of the movies he was directing, um, and I think that contributed a little bit to the confusion here. But again, Android Uprising and Android Insurrection are two different movies, both of which Andrew directed, one released in 2012 and one in 2020. Anyway, enough about all that. Without further ado, I now bring you my fun and fascinating conversation with Andrew Belware. 
I have always been interested in filmmaking. I think since I was little, I was really fascinated by it. And I made little Super 8 movies. I turned into an audio engineer for quite a bit of my career and still do. And I also just completely inadvertently got into theater. And I've done a lot of theater sound design in my life. I, I used to be, I was a founding member of Manhattan Theater Source, which was, uh, I would say, fairly important of the off-off Broadway theaters in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. We, we existed for about 11 years, I think, between uh, 1999 and 2010 or so. Mm-hmm. And that was a great stepping off point for when I, uh, my girlfriend at the time, who I still work with her pretty exclusively as a producer, she and I started making movies and we made a lot of very low budget science fiction movies. Uh-huh. And we were fortunate that with our very first movie, which was called Pandora Machine, uh-huh. we got a deal with the Asylum. Now, the Asylum is is the outfit that's known now primarily for making mockbusters and things like Sharknado and that sort of thing. Ironically, a friend of mine, I had made a very art house picture called Apostasy. Mm-hmm. Let me give you a couple pieces of advice in your life. Never make a movie with a title that most people can't define as long, let alone pronounce. Um, yeah. But anyway, so I met a woman named Eve Vandenberg on that, and she is a an independent filmmaker who's done a lot of really interesting things. And she had done a movie that I'd actually heard of called Dogs, The Rise and Fall of an All-Girl Bookie Joint, <laughs> um, which actually- Great name. Was, it, it was a great name, but it <laughs> did pretty well on the festival circuit. She turned me on to going to the asylum because just before- we were working with the asylum. The asylum was actually doing art house films. And it's kind of a funny thing when you look at a lot of companies that do like real genre stuff, a lot of them started as art house people. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> um, so they were distributing art house pictures to the blockbuster and boy, say what you will about blockbuster. It was good for the indie filmmaker at the time. Yeah. Yeah. We used to actually be able to make a little bitty bit of money. So we got a deal. Now, this was going to be 2004, maybe. Mm -hmm. I want to say they paid $7.35 a piece for 7,000 VHS copies of the movie. Yep. That was amongst the highlights of our career. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And, uh, it was a sort of uh, a, a golden age for kind of. I, I, I assume you're kind of you're talking in the straight to video realm here, right? Yes. Oh, no, yes. No, absolutely. No theatrical no, distribution, right? No theatrical. That it, and that's a thing that's a little bit more genre focused. The mm-hmm. the disinterest in the theatrical distribution is is a little more uh, apparent in the the horror science fiction sort of part of the world mm-hmm. uh, because it used to be, it used to be that you could actually make money doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing w- that you used to be able to do is if you had, well, for for a while, like gay and lesbian films were a real good 
if you're if you had low budget or no budget and you can make a good little gay or lesbian themed story you were in good shape because mm -hmm. there weren't enough people telling those stories and there was enough of an audience for that but i think that you know since then a lot of big budget projects have come along and and it's not it, it's not as remunerative for the independent artists doing if you were like really into penguins you make a good penguin movie uh, there's <laughs> lots of people who love penguins right horror is something that people tend to really like and they don't care if there are big stars in it yeah and it can be and isn't always but it can be relatively inexpensive to produce mm -hmm. i don't do horror and to tell you the truth i think one of the problems with horror is that it it's much harder than almost any genre to direct hmm. because it's very very precise Mm -hmm. You know, I can make a dramatic story. I can do that. Man, getting a real jump scare to work mm -hmm. is real precise. Yeah, it it definitely has a real precise. I think I think you mean in sort of the editing sense that or, well, it is, I mean, but you, man, but you have to direct for editing. For yeah, 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 yeah. You, you have to shoot, shoot for, for editing. That. Yeah, yeah. No, that totally makes sense. And I often think of horror actually as kind of similar to comedy in that respect, because I think comedy yes. requires that kind of precision as well. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, it, it requires like just perfect timing, right? It, to just kind oh, of yeah. get this visceral reaction yeah. from the audience, which is laughter in the case of comedy, but in horror, it's sort of the scare. Uh, but they both have these kind of, yeah, this kind of requirement of like, being able to cut just right. And of course you have to shoot to be able to cut just right. So, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I've always felt that that was kind of outside of my uh, wheelhouse. Yeah. So we shot Pandora machine and we got an international sales rep. They were handling worldwide for us. And I remember saying, you know, we're going to end up getting all the deals and they're just going to take the money. But, you know, just saying, okay, that's just going to happen. Yep. That's what happened because we yep. got the deal with the asylum and our sales rep took a chunk of it. But yep. our next movie, which ended up being called The Millennium Crisis, we got a sales rep and I don't remember how we found them, but um, it's Halcyon Pictures. Unfortunately, there's another Halcyon Pictures that that owns the uh, the Terminator franchise. It's not that one. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, Important distinction. Yeah. We had, again, in the, the theater that uh, I was one of the founding members of, we met somebody through somebody else who knew Ted Raimi. Mm. And we were able to get Ted Raimi to act for a week between Christmas and New Year's for us. And that was really fun. We flew him out and gave him a place to stay in New York. And he you know, acted in my, mostly yeah. in my parents' basement, right. uh, which is where we set up all of the sets. Yep. And he would be there while my dad was just eating some cereal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so these are, and, these are science fiction films that you are sort of, are, are you originating the content of these? Yeah. So I direct, right. I've, okay. I've directed all of them. Okay. And I've co-written a number of them, both Pandora Machine and Millennium Crisis, I co-wrote. And with Millennium Crisis, we, we got this, uh, we got a sales agent who only handled overseas. So they they took right. everything except for North America, which is actually, it's that like, that's a pretty fair way to do it because everybody knows that 
the sales, the way that they were working, at least until the last few years, mm-hmm. the sale to North America, all of the United States and Canada, uh, North America, not really including Mexico, because it's actually the the, the markets are more of a language difference yep. than a physical difference. But that's one phone call. That's one person saying, yeah, we'll give you at one time it was $10,000 and then $5,000 and then $2,000. And <laughs> I haven't heard better numbers <laughs> lately, but you know, there, there used to be the possibility of like best buy deals and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And our distributor for millennium crisis in the United States uh, is a company that they, they did a lot of like low budget sort of Mondo gore kind of, stuff some sort of mm-hmm. like soft core sort of you know goofy films and they're really going for it but yeah with the, with the loss of blockbuster it really hurt mm-hmm. a lot of people mm-hmm. but we continued to make movies uh we continue to make some some low budget pictures um so if, if i could ask uh one when you say low budget can you give us kind of oh, a rough yeah. range on that i mean we would seriously do movies with a cash budget of like seven thousand dollars but sometimes we'd we'd spend a little bit more mm-hmm. are you uh, are you raising this privately or yeah just we're just putting it in yourself you know, or... i have a job and okay. here's the money and okay you know, sort of take it out on you know lunch is really you you, you end up spending a, a decent amount on lunch if you're um, if you're good <laughs> if you're good to your cast and crew yeah well here's the secret uh, Chinese lunch specials. <laughs> well, what people like about that is that anybody can order whatever they want. Uh-huh. And it's usually a pretty good deal. Right. And it's certainly enough food. Yeah. So, yeah, so that that really helps. But yeah. but also just, yeah, if you just go around to local places yeah. and say, look, what could you do for me? And right. like, we can make you some fun special sandwiches and a gift bag and everything and uh, that our, our producer laura schlockmeyer has done that. yeah 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 they've done an excellent job it's real diy kind of level stuff yeah um, you know. can can i ask in these kind of early days when you're making these films for such low budgets but at the same time you are getting them sold to the likes of blockbuster uh with these kind of vod deals yeah, like or not vod one, yes. i'm sorry like straight to video that's what i meant to say yeah that was before vod yeah yeah yeah, yeah. uh um are you making money back on these making enough to kind not, of sustain or like or are you just continuing to sink money into these things and not the caring? first the first three movies i think we made enough money to to sustain just enough money like that we could say okay we made our money back yeah uh, the cash that we put on it okay. it became more and more of us i i seven thousand dollars is is low we probably averaged about 15 uh-huh on most of them we had one movie okay so i should probably say that the way that we set up our contracts you know you you set up a contract where you say oh look we'll give you you know five percent of our profit whatever that means <laughs> yeah that it's it everything about that is a joke like right it's because profit is whatever they say it is basically right right but yeah. and it becomes whatever we say it is so okay. what i did was i i came oh, up I with see. what i thought was kind of a witty idea right which was to say look if we make more than thirty thousand dollars then we will actually give you you know one or two uh, or three percent 
right. of whatever amount of money we actually make above yeah. a specific number, not like trying to jerk around with like this idea of profit. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I, maybe I missed, missed something and I, and I apologize that if I did, but when you say, so you're taking this money in and you're saying what your kind of profit point is and giving, who, when you say giving you, who do you mean giving you? Oh, like actors and. Oh, I see. And, okay. Okay. I see. You're great. Right, right. So in sort of like deferred payment kind of kind yeah. of thing. Right. Okay. And we actually managed, we, we managed to pay out once. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, that we were extremely chuffed. Yeah. The moment we were able to hand people a check for, you know, upwards of a couple hundred dollars. Yeah. 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 Each. Yeah. Um, that's I mean, that just just being able to do that is great. So so up until that point, felt, pe people are mostly it, working for you for free. Oh, yeah. 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 OK. All right. But but it, that felt really good. Yeah, I bet. I'm sure it did. So we did reach a high point and I would say, oh, well, it was with the movie which is now called Android Insurrection. So I made Android know, Uprising, right? No, I believe Oh, that's a different one cuz I Android watched that last night. Well, now you know why Android shows up in in the title of so many science fiction films? Uh-huh. It's actually because the VOD listings are alphabetical. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting, right? Not not kidding. Yeah, no, that why. makes total sense. Makes total um, sense. And so one of the, the things about, one thing that's sort of fun about this is that I do, in fact, have complete creative control. I say I, Ooh. I mean, with my partners and my team, yeah. we, we do actually have complete creative control. Nobody comes back to us and says, oh, we're demanding these edits. Yes. Yeah. Th that would be ridiculous. Yep. But the one place where we absolutely do not have any power is in the name of the picture. Huh. When you're selling overseas, which is what most of our market was for most of this time, that's that's critical because you're not going to make up a name in English that's going to work in Japan. Mm -hmm. They they know their market. They yep. know what they're going to do. Japan was was consistently a. a a good buyer for us. Not anymore, but hmm. they were. And I think that that was, at least from, you know, everyone I knew or had been to Japan recently, they, they were saying that, yeah, the, the video stores in Japan still exist and they still have very expensive DVDs. So the DVDs were in US dollars anywhere between 40 and $80. Oh, wow. They were actually, yeah. And I think, but I'm not exactly sure, but I think that it's because Japanese don't actually have as many personal computers as you'd think that they would. Because you always think of, oh, Japan's extremely high. They're like the model of high tech. Yeah. They're the model of high tech and handheld devices. And it actually has to do, and I could be completely wrong about all this, but I think that I'm probably right. It has to do with simply being able to, to, to write uh, in Japanese. It's very hard to do on a personal computer. It's very easy to do on a cell phone, on a handheld device. So they don't have a lot of PCs. So they don't, the, the VOD market was much slower to develop in Japan than in other places. So we were able to get sales in Japan because they yeah. needed movies and, you know, you know, they could get people to, to translate them and to right. actually Thailand is another good example and all the Thai Americans that I know are like, oh yeah, every time you know, anybody goes to Thailand, they they end up 
you know, going back to Thailand, they they get like a a list of things that relatives want, like movies that they want, <laughs> but they want the Thai version of them. And that market existed, mm-hmm. and it doesn't really exist so much anymore. And then during the pandemic, it, it completely fell apart because big budget movies were losing their theatrical distribution. And so whenever a producer like loses one layer or one level of of distribution, they'll just look to the next level down. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of cascades down to the level that we were at, which mm-hmm. was pretty much at the bottom. But once they we're we're in direct competition with fairly large budget movies with known casts who are taking a much bigger bath than we are mm-hmm. money wise at least we can feel good about that yeah yeah right <laughs> but but that that's you know not that that was painful yeah yeah so uh if you could just you know you're st- still kind of getting talking about history a little bit you know so i know that at some at some point you were making a little bit of money you actually got to pay some actors and crew for yeah. film that kind of thing this was all like this is all nostalgia like back in the kind of i'm guessing late aughts some, somewhere uh, around that, that time was, frame uh, i'm gonna say that was 10 years ago <laughs> 10 years ago okay going into you know 2013 or whatever yeah uh and then yeah so now take me through what what kind of happened after that what what kind of changes did you see in the marketplace after that well, the it, it started just getting a lot tighter. The amount of money that we could get from different markets was going down. Uh, the amount of money for North America was plummeting. If you've ever heard anybody complain about how horrible the retail business is, just dealing with retailers, dealing with Best Buy is simply a nightmare. Mm-hmm. They're very, Walmart is just, they're mean. Mm-hmm. And they're, they beat up the distributors you're trying to sell to them. And it just becomes it just becomes untenable. Yeah. Now I'm curious, are you are you exposed to any of this directly, or is this all kind of happening through your sales agent? These kinds of it's all happening through sales agents because we're not you and I can't go to Best Buy and say, Hey, would you buy my movie? They will not talk to us. Right. Right. So they might not even talk to the person that we can talk to. Mm -hmm. It might be another layer up from them yep. where they have a deal with somebody who has a deal with somebody who can actually talk to the people who actually do the buying for a big box retailer yeah, or so, like Redbox or something. Yep. So one thing I'm curious about is, uh, you know, once you found sales agents who then I guess talk to distributors who then talk to you know, maybe somebody else, but they'll ultimately end up talking to the retailers. How difficult was the process for you of actually finding sales agents? Was that just kind of, did you early on get attached to a particular sales agent? And you we, were, we were extremely fortunate in that yeah. we got a sales agent who was going into science fiction and really going science fiction hard with the second feature that, that Laura and I did together uh, called Millennium Crisis. So from then on, we've been pretty loyal uh, to Halcyon uh, just because they've been really straight up with us about yep. stuff. Okay. And unfortunately, sometimes that straight up story is just, uh, yeah, this isn't going to work. <laughs> right. So things are drying up, um, yeah. meaning that basically that 
I, I'm expecting, I'm guessing, well, why don't, I, why don't I put that to you? Like, why why do you think they're drying up? What's happening to the marketplace at this point, at probably mid-2010s kind of time frame? Uh, you know, what's happening there that's that's shifting things? Well, Blockbuster's dead, as anyone to, to sell to. Uh, and so is the other the other big video store. They, they're not in my area, so I forget. Yeah, was it Hollywood Video? Uh, yeah, maybe. Something like that. I don't yeah. remember. Yep, yep. Um, we don't actually have any of them here, or never did. And then Video On Demand never really did what everybody wanted it to do, because it seemed like, oh, this is going to be a great idea, and we don't even have to have a distributor because we could just do it ourselves. But, boy, it's hard to actually make any money yeah. with it. Well, it's interesting because I've, I've talked to a few other people, I think, who around that time frame, there was kind of, there was kind of a window around that time frame where, as I understand it, Prime Direct, I can't remember what it's called. It's, it's oh, escaping yeah. me. But there was like, you know, direct to Prime that you could actually, because, there, because it hadn't caught on enough that there was just this total overabundance of content, you could actually get on Pr Prime Direct or whatever it was called. Uh, you could get on Prime Direct and you could actually make a little bit of money from that. And, yeah. and I've talked to filmmakers who kind of in that, like, I think mid, you know, like around 2013, 14, 15 kind yep. of time frame, they were actually able to make some decent money from films by that. Uh, but then, as I understand it, it all just sort of caught on almost too big. It became too much of yeah. a good thing. And everybody started putting stuff on Prime and there was just so much content that Amazon, the cost per view went, it just dropped, yeah. you know? So there was a little window there where I think people could make some money and then it just fell apart. Yeah. Does that yep. jibe with your that, experience that, as well? That is, that is what I understood uh, yep. from it. Uh, we yep. never actually <laughs> had, we, we never saw any of that money. Yeah, We've got one movie that called Dragon Girl Mm -hmm. which is not a good movie and we just I watched it I watched it I I liked it actually I thought oh. it was kind of interesting and inventive and I can it see why it maybe didn't do problem. very well but it was it had yeah, what I'm sorry a tonal problem uh, we didn't really know what kind of movie we were making when Yeah we yeah it. I could see and, you saying that right and I think that I've made you know at maybe $4 in streaming on it and now yeah. with you having watched it i'm sure that's another like 13 cents <laughs> right so as this is happening are you able to keep even though you're not making as much revenue are you able to keep making movies at the level that you were making that i mean that must must um, be affecting your budgets a little bit Go it, ahead. Uh, ironically our, our budgets has kept going slightly up yeah in, in a lot of ways for genre stuff by and large you're better off putting your money in effects than you are in name talent. That's, you know, just part of the, the reality of it. And it's because if you're thinking about your audience, uh, and this, I think, I, I feel like with, with genre people, the people are so excited about the genre that they're in. So if you're doing, say, a horror movie, mm -hmm. you probably really like horror films. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, you should stop trying to make a horror film because you're just not going to be able to do a good job of it. Yep. But the people who do well at it are really into it mm -hmm. and they can, they, they have a real feel for it. And the same is true for, you know, science fiction. I mean, all the science fiction people have, we have all of the same touchstones, the same things that we all are really into and, 
we will all watch pretty much all science fiction yeah. no matter what and that's that's why there is there is a, a market for it we don't really need to have a star in the movie because uh, we, were, we were just talking about that the, the film that was made in Washington State called Prospect. Mm-hmm. I would have watched that even if I didn't know anybody on the production. You yep. watched it not knowing anybody yep. on the production. Of course, we're going to watch it. I just I watched it because it looked good. It looked cool. Yeah. It, looked, it, it looked cool. It struck I, my science fiction fancy. You know, yeah, I didn't need absolutely. any any names at all. Right. Didn't didn't matter. Yeah. I mean, you have that advantage that it it is a passion and you really do have to be passionate about it. I mean, if you're not seriously, almost any other job will make you happier and certainly be better for your pocketbook. I mean, that, that, sorry to interrupt, but that, that kind of begs a question of, are, are, so are you actually, is this your job? I'm guessing not. It was, it, it was. was briefly. Okay. It was briefly. <laughs> um, then I decided, all right, forget this. I'm going to, I'm going to go back to school. Okay. And I, I got my master's degree in uh, composing for film mm-hmm. uh, online, actually in the oh, UK. Great. Yeah, and uh, and now I'm working on my PhD online in the UK, but still working with my producer and and her husband. Actually, we've made a handful of movies under pandemic conditions. Uh huh. That. Although they haven't made us any money and there's no way that because they're all art house films or series of shorts, mm-hmm. all sort of pandemic related, but all shot. They're they're what you might call Zoom shorts. They're they're mm-hmm. all shot so that the fact that they're on Zoom is sort of part of the story of it. Yep. And we have a a new feature that we shot again under pandemic conditions, which just meant that it's all one actor mm-hmm. and the the name of that movie is is the drowned girl and mm-hmm. it's a it's a feature length about the woman who is the most famous or infamous actress in Hitler's Germany and what i love about this picture is that richard burn who's the writer is excellent at writing people who aren't evil so much as evil adjacent and boy is Christina Soderbaum evil adjacent because she's she is right there in the middle of really some of the most loathsome vile propaganda that the Nazis ever created and she's in the middle of it and I'm very excited about this movie oh, cool. actually yeah. it's it and but can we make money at it I don't think so I mean there there's no like, what would it be? Like a PBS sale? I don't think so. Is it, is this still within the realm? Is this still? A, is this a short or a feature? It's a feature. It's so, a feature. Yeah. Uh, so there's more potential anyway. Uh, and is yeah. it is it still kind of art house? Like, yeah. Would yeah. You it's say? Very, it's, yeah. It's a very sort of dreamy. You know, right. she's in hell, but she doesn't realize it. Sort of. Yeah. I wish thing. there was. I wish there was more like. You know, I mean, there are people out there who consume art house content. There are people out there who want it. There are people out there who want stuff oh, that yeah. pushes boundaries and things like that. Like, I mean, you you talked about Dragon Girl and and 
you said it wasn't good or I think, but, uh, <laughs> you know, again, it's like, I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say it was great for sure, but it was interesting and it, and it was experimenting with some stuff and, you know, pushing some boundaries here and there. And I love stuff like that, whether it's good or not. I always appreciate that people are trying to do interesting things with film. And that's so important. I think, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, I think and, and actually trying to do something. Yeah, well, I mean, I, it's, an, it's an art, you know, I mean, when we talk about, it, I thought it's a business and there's all that art versus business debate and we can, you know, you can always go into that, but for some people anyway, a lot of people, it's an art and, and it should generate art. It should generate stuff that's challenging and interesting and cool and, you know, all that kind of thing. So I always appreciate yeah. that kind of content. And I just wish that there were, that there were better ways these days to connect that material with the people who want to consume it. Cause I think it's difficult Yeah, and, and for yeah, artists I, to get paid for it somehow some way getting paid uh, for yeah. it is even harder i think that artists outside of the big markets like new york city yeah it's there's there are some advantages in that it's a little bit easier to form a community mm -hmm. you can actually have a scene like a film scene where yep. people are actually coming to see one another's pictures yeah um New York City has always been very difficult with that. I feel like that's probably also true in Paris and London, mm -hmm. that it's there's just too many people that it just becomes too much of a thing. Los Angeles, like, yep. could you imagine trying to, like, start a film club in Los Angeles? It would yeah. just be like, uh But you get out of there and you get to where people are a little more settled about it and you have some advantages. Like, I feel like... Getting back to my buddy Chance uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, it, Birmingham has a really interesting film scene. Hmm. And <clears throat> I would certainly think that that would be true of, you know, other, like, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that's still true in Pittsburgh. Yep. And uh, Washington, D.C., actually, Washington, D.C., who would have known that Washington, D.C. has this great theater scene? Hmm. Yeah. They, to they totally do. Right. Um, my my first piece of advice to to anybody doing this is, man, surround yourself with people who actually want to see you succeed. That's all that matters. And you know, once you get that, then you can worry about all the other things. Um, and so that, that that's my little advice for that's the young people great advice. out there. Yeah, I mean, I think you know one of the themes that that has come up pretty frequently on other interviews that I've done is. This notion that you know, there's so much content out there these days that it's really hard, and, and especially filmmakers that have been kind of sold on the narrative of the you know, the '90s up and comers, the Kevin Smiths oh, God, and the know. Richard Linklaters and all that stuff, right? So these days, there's a lot of emphasis I hear about trying to build yourself a fan base before you even make your movie. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, you know, try try to try to develop some kind of community that you can connect with that can be sort of like emotionally invested or even financially invested in small amounts of crowdfunding and that kind of thing in what you're going to do so that you have a sort of a built-in audience once you do it. And this idea that you just, if you build it, they will come, you know, you make a film and, and nobody knows you're making a film and then you just put it out there and you pray to the gods that somebody comes down and gives you a great, you know, million dollar distribution deal like Miramax used to do or whatever. Like that's all gone, you know, um, and you can't approach it that way. You have to kind of almost approach it this sort of bottom up kind of, of approach. Like, you know, where can I find my fans myself just right from the get go? <clears throat> would you agree with that sentiment? Uh, I, I would, I, I would. And this is, you know, maybe just being cynical about it. It, it doesn't really work in that you, you don't actually build up necessarily enough of a base to actually make money with it. 
Yeah. But if you're thinking about other people, <laughs> thinking yeah. about other people is actually really important. Yeah. Because you can really get into a whole thing where you're just iterating inside yourself and inside your own brain. And, and it's just, it it's not actually making something that's good. Yeah. And the other sort of inherent problem sort of with uh, genre pictures is that, you know, we can, we can make a, a picture of a robot blowing up and you look at that picture of a robot blowing up and you're like, that looks cool. I want to see more robot blow up. But your problems with a feature film are the same no matter what you're doing. It has to be a story mm -hmm. that you have to be invested in. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't matter how many robots you blow up in it. The story is still about one person, one yep. man, one girl, one robot who right. has a problem. Yep. And then they make a decision and the problem gets worse. But a whole bunch of other things happen. And maybe they meet somebody else. And so all of those story things have to be there. And they have to be there whether you're making an 18th century costume drama or if you're making an 18th century costume drama zombie picture, which, <laughs> well. Oh, there's an idea. <laughs> well, it, there is. And actually, the, the, other, the other thing that I, I usually tell uh people who are doing art house pictures is look, put a murder in the movie. <laughs> you can be talking about, Oh, I'm making a movie. That's all about the interaction of these characters and how they, okay, that's great. Put a murder on page 10. Yeah. And it all lifts up. Just give somebody, the, just give your audience something kind of visceral to yeah. and, and primal to sink their teeth into, I think, yeah. right, is what you're saying. If I can put words that, in your mouth a little bit, that's a good yeah. way. That's a good way to to think about it. Yeah, yeah. and you know, it's it's the other thing about horror movies, for instance, in general, is boy, trying to define horror can be a little bit uh, difficult, and then you can finally get to the logical conclusion of, well, you know, all stories really are horror stories because. <laughs> yeah. Because you're always horrified. You're horrified that she won't get the boy who's really right for her. Or it doesn't matter what the story is. And then when you look at it the other way, you know, a, a zombie picture can be almost anything. Oh, yeah. The zombie picture, it can be about like two brothers and their relationship with their estranged father and how they feel about that. In during the zombie holocaust, and that that's kind of an interesting thing about zombie pictures. Yeah, yep. is that if you're just going to go see a zombie movie, you still don't know what the genre of the movie is. Yeah, it's a great point. And Night of the Living Dead is really one of the heaviest social social commentary movies. Yeah, that, that's ever been made. Yeah, brilliant. Like the ending of that movie when I first saw it as as a that's a person who was way too young to be watching yeah. it <laughs> really just like it like affected me. Yeah. Yeah. And not the eating people. Yeah. That's not the problem in the movie. That's not the thing that just, that when you're done, you're just like, Oh no. Yep. 
it's the way that the movie actually ends. Yeah, I, I honestly don't remember how it ends. It, uh, it's been a, actually quite a long time since I've seen I, it. I remember loving gets, it, but I don't remember. He gets, uh, he gets shot yeah. by a gang of what looks like a posse of racists. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. It's very late 1960s. Yeah, exactly that kind of social commentary that was popular oh, at that time and, and so effective. Uh, he you know. really hits yeah. it. And the irony is that, like, with so much horror pictures, like the the Ur horror movie is Night of the Living Dead, and yeah. and the racial commentary in it is the opposite of what became the whole racial commentary of the black guy dies first. Right. It's like, dude, the whole genre is based on the movie where no, the black guy died last, and <laughs> that was the tragedy. Was he? survived the zombies but he didn't survive the humans yep yeah that's i mean it's a heavy heavy movie that's pretty deep yeah and kind of brilliant really they yeah they did an excellent job with that and that's the movie is apparently in the public domain now so if you want to make an opera of the night of the living dead <laughs> it's all yours sure yeah yeah uh, yeah no I'm doubt i mean just look at like you know the walking dead for better or for worse, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about the, the whole series, but it, you know, the focus of that series is the walking dead are just a catalyst to all well, of these human dramas and these human interactions and, right. you know, who the bad guys are and who the good guys are and, and how they, how all the humans clash to survive this apocalypse. And the, the wandering bodies are really just, you know, they're just background almost to absolutely, the human absolutely. drama that's going on. And, you know, I think that's always going to be true because you, know, you can only make zombies so interesting. Uh, right. But I mean, know. even in, in something like Alien, the, the series yeah. keeps reiterating the fact that the problem isn't the aliens. Right. The problem is the humans. Yeah. <laughs> it's the if, company. If it weren't for, if, yeah, if it weren't for super or, you know, trans intergalactic global capitalism. Right. You wouldn't have these problems. We'd yeah. be able to solve the problem of a hostile alien xenomorph. Yeah. <laughs> right. But you can't solve it when these human organizations are working against you. That's yeah. that's what the entire yeah. thing is about. Yeah. And so that's a really kind of a fascinating thing. And it's sort of like where where do we draw the line between the art house and the, the genre mm -hmm. picture? There isn't really that part of one, you know, is, is Hamlet, in fact, a ghost story? Because it sure starts out as one. And, you know, Macbeth, don't get me started. It's the whole thing is, I mean, that is a very genre picture. But I don't know. I, I have not been able to make self-distribution work. Yeah. Uh, the most popular thing that we've done is to make a podcast of one of our movies, actually, hmm. called Earth Killer. Earth Killer is, uh, I think we did it in 12 parts, mm -hmm. and we've had more than 20,000 downloads. Mm, that's great. Now, we didn't bother to, we didn't, we didn't monetize that in any way. Yeah. So, yeah. so just to kind of get back to, to distribution a little bit, where are you today in terms of, I, I know you talked about some shorts that you had out there, which obviously are, are not going to make any money. And then you have this feature that's coming out. Uh, and it seems like you're pretty resigned to not making money at this point. Would would that be a fair characterization? Uh, no, we're. I think between me and Laura Schlockmeyer, the producer, we yeah. just 
were too stubborn to give up. So right now my income doesn't come from that. I, you know, I make, I do corporate work, Mm -hmm. uh, freelance, but I can't stop. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I've been doing other things that have been like even less possibly remunerative, like uh, puppet opera. (laughs) Because we're, we're also, we're also making a puppet opera, uh, based on this work by Ernst Toller, who was this crazy German socialist uh, who was the president of the Soviet Bavarian Republic for six days in the 1920s or 30s, I think. So it's just this crazy German expressionist play that we're yeah. turning into an opera. Yeah. But no, I, I still, I believe, I just, don't see what the I don't see what the path is anymore. Yeah. For a while I saw what the path was, and that was you have an international rep, they go to the American film market, because there's only one international film market where everything gets sold now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there used to be a handful of them, but the AFM really pushed the rest on. That's in Santa Monica, California every year. Yep. So you go there, you spend several thousand dollars getting a hotel room where people they have like the second floor and buyers walk around and actually ask you you know what do you got who's in it which you know compared to the music business because the music business there's making money is just delusional fantasy but in the film business there was very briefly there were very briefly there was a time when Buyers were actually coming around and saying, oh, you've got a new science fiction movie. And every once in a while, I get an email from from a sales rep, not really a distributor, saying, hey, what's going on with this movie? We saw that you're part of it. And so we just say, talk to our sales rep. Yeah, yeah. So Um, uh, just to dwell on that a little bit, like... I wonder, and and you can correct me if, if you think I'm wrong, but you know, I, I you know, AFM still exists. Films are still bought at the a- a- AFM, you know, um, and every once in a while there are still, what's the word? I can't remember, but you know, there's there's still you know miracle stories of filmmakers who sell their films, you know, sell their really low budget films that came out of nowhere to somebody and make you know make a bunch of money. I think, uh, or at least become successful, whether they're actually making money or not. They, they it launches their careers or what have you. That still happens. It seems to me that a lot of the reason why it seems like that doesn't happen as much maybe is just because there are so many more movies being made that those stories get kind of drowned out by all of the stories of films that go to those markets or try to go to those markets or can't even bother to go to those markets and then aren't successful. And I see you thinking about that. that. So could be. Yeah. <clears throat> One thing that's very different is that television is very different right now. Yeah. And the other thing is that a lot of the stories about people making a whole lot of money were kind of stories about people making a whole lot of money mm-hmm. more than them actually doing that. I suspect that, I mean, you can certainly, if you're not me, you could parlay a good film that gets a bunch of good reviews into some kind of career, whether it's directing television or you know, low budget film or whatever. That is a thing that can happen. Yeah. And, you know, HBO and Netflix and Amazon, even now are spending a lot of money making what the equivalent of what used to be sort of independent films, you know, because there Mm -hmm. used to be sort of like this middle-class filmmaking 
uh, kind of what we used to call the mini majors or something like that. Yeah, that. They, yeah. they used to sort of exist. But now, you know, they're actually kind of doing a better job, mm-hmm. arguably, on Netflix than they ever did for theatrical releases. Mm-hmm. So I think that the, the one thing that seems to be the case is that it keeps changing. So your goal of what you think is going to happen has to keep being altered. Like if it were 1973 and you were hanging out with Roger Corman, mm-hmm. you'd have one goal and that goal would always be theatrical. But 15 years later, theatrical was just not making you the money, but there was plenty of money doing some other thing. So, you know, the the whole market sort of like you just have to kind of rethink your your brain into it. Yeah. So what do you what are you rethinking now about I, the future? Uh, you have no idea. <laughs> yeah, there there's a lot of an advantage to being really excited about what you're doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. And not really over yeah. trying to emphasize well, what's that it gonna makes be a like in five years. Yeah. Um and you know, getting back to that thing about being around people who's are actually interested in you succeeding. Don't work with people that you hate. Oh, yeah, definitely not. <laughs> no, life is way too short. Yeah. Like yeah. if you make something where you put all of your heart and soul and money into it and it flops commercially, but you were with a lot of really great friends and you can all get together and celebrate how awesome it was to do it because you had such a good time, yeah. that's much better than because you know I've worked in in environments where everybody was horrible and awful but they were successful in a you know in a traditional sense and it's horrible yeah that's not you know, it's you not worth the it. success that you get no out of it's it. not it's it's yeah. absolutely not yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it'd be much better to have a day job and you know have people that you like around you and I think and, the converse you know has to be said which is that if you surround yourself with people that you enjoy being around, that you enjoy creating content with, you, you know, that that are just kind of on your wavelength. The experience of being through that outweighs any quote oh, failure yeah. that may result, well, you know, financial failure or whatever, you, you know, you call it, even if it's a, even if it's an artistic failure, even if like yeah, what you, yeah. the project you set out to create doesn't end up being all that good. It'll just a joy to make these things. Yeah. Go ahead. I would go on further in that. Yeah. Even if you're, you've got somebody who's just like, wow, I'm not on your artistic wavelength. I have no idea what you're doing here. I got, I got nothing, but I'm really glad that you're doing it. Yeah. Well, I, I have a number of friends. I have friends who, who actually don't like science fiction. Mm-hmm. My poor dad, <laughs> my dad <laughs> really couldn't watch movies. Yeah. He's seriously like, you could take him to see modern dance you could yeah. show him some avant wackadoo theater uh, he could read epic poems but you show him a movie or a tv show and he seriously had no idea what was going on wow just, interesting but he supported it he's yeah. like oh that's great that you're doing it yeah. i have no idea what you're doing <laughs> but that's fine you know yeah. you, you can have lots of people around you who are just like i understand you you just needed somebody to make sure that the car had gas in it in the morning mm-hmm. i did that i have no idea what this movie is that you're making yeah what is that person doing in that monster suit i <laughs> i don't know but that's fine 
Yeah. That's fine. It, it actually is the energy first. Yep. And then getting somebody who's like, oh, yeah, no, I, I, I understand why she's wearing yellow in this scene. Right. I got it. Right. That's those are two different things, really. And, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and sometimes those people who really have no idea actually have really good ideas. And that's really what it is all about. Yeah. Because and the only way to really get that is that, I mean, you have to ask yourself, are you the sort of person who gives that kind of energy back to everybody else around you? Right. So somebody's making a movie that you just don't care about. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's another documentary about ducks. <laughs> well, they asked me to go pick them up lunch and to, you know, I lent them a camera and it's a documentary about ducks. <laughs> but hey, it's what they're doing. Whatever you need. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah I, I think those are great words. Sorry, did, did you have more no, to add? That's, that's... Those are those are great words. The the only thing that I would kind of offer up as you used the word cynical earlier, so I'll offer this up as a cynical <laughs> point, which is that unfortunately, like this is a lot easier to say if you're a piano player or violin player or painter or something like that, because the the, your, the tools that you work with cost. You know, you, you pay you pay you buy a violin once and you're done. You can play the violin for the rest of your life. You know, film is so expensive. Um, and so it has this like kind of built-in demand to try to make money back. And, and that's where I find that the tension is, and it's a fascinating tension to me. That's kind of why I'm doing this podcast, but there's this like tension of, am I obligated to myself? If I'm going to pour my own money into this film, I can talk all about passion and joy and stuff like that, but am I obligated? Or if I get, you know, my friends, my rich friends to invest in it or something like that, am I obligated to try to find a way to return that money to them in the face of this kind of bleak environment that we're in right now where there's so little hope of actually making money on on film. I, I don't really have a comment about it. I've just like that's that to me is the is the tension that gets in the way of being able to just embrace filmmaking and just do it. Is it just costs money. It takes money out of your pocket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think hard that you're for at, that reason. I think that that's a a, a really good point. And it, there's a couple different aspects of it. Yeah. If you're taking money from other people you feel an obligation to make their money back? Yeah. So yeah. you kind of want to not spend money frivolously. Yeah. But on the other hand, relatively speaking, we live in the cheapest time for filmmaking that's ever existed. No doubt. That is a, a big difference. Like going back to the, the asylum, for the longest time, their buyers were insisting that they shoot on 35 millimeter mm. because their buyers felt that 35 millimeter was a quality difference and it just ate their budgets Yep, and it made everything really difficult. Now, can you shoot on an iPhone? Eh, sort of. Yeah. So what is it that you're spending your money on? Yeah. Do you, do you really need that thing? Because a lot of the art is not those things. Mm -hmm. Now, some of it is, man. Like sometimes like you spend some money on some great sets and you can really see the set and you're like, yeah, I, I can see why we're we're doing this. Yeah. But at least you're not blowing hundreds of thousands of dollars and then you're just sitting there amongst a bunch of film cans that you can't even show yourself because you can't afford a Steenbeck flatbed editor. Right. I mean, nowadays, if you can afford to shoot it, you can afford to get it on your computer yep. and look at it. Yep. 
you, you can afford you can afford to edit it you can afford to to mix it you can afford to color color it i mean you can, yeah. all of these things are there are free tools to do all of these things which is amazing but but the thing that it is costing you is the time and one yeah. thing about filmmaking that's different from say being a painter uh is that painting is a few skills but filmmaking is obnoxiously yeah. a whole bunch of skills. Yeah, absolutely. And this this is why they have like a small, you know, on a big budget production, it's a small army yeah. of people who are all specialists in certain details. Yeah. And that's harder mm -hmm. to deal with. Like, are you, do, do you really feel confident as an art director? Do you feel confident as a sound mixer and a cinematographer and a gaffer and a lighting and an acting coach is your script, you know, really that great. Yep. And you've got all of these different kinds of problems. So probably most of your issues are located inside all of those things. Yeah. Um, so it depends on what you're spending your money on. If you're spending your money on a red camera, probably not. Yeah. <clears throat> nobody nobody can tell, nobody cares yep. that you've shot on a, you know, an actual Sony VistaVision camera. Right. Uh, but, you know, it, there is that whole rule of boy, if you have a really really good script, it's hard to screw it up. Yeah, no doubt. If the script is really that good. Yeah. So, um the the great <clears throat> words couldn't agree more with with all of what you just said i i and, and i'll let you go soon i just i, I want to get back a little bit just to a little bit more of your personal experience because i'm it's more curiosity than anything else at this point but i did watch android uprising last night and i'm pretty sure it's android uprising because i remember the title but uh okay uh i, I did watch it last night and it, it struck me as soon as i started watching it that it it was a film with some budget um, it has a lot of locations. It has some digital effects. It has, you know, uh, you know, it's it's not made super super cheap. I, I'm still kind of wondering, like, how, how is the math working for you in in terms of the money that goes into that level of film? Are you able to comment on the budget of that film at all? Um, I would only not be able to comment on it because I don't remember. Okay. Um, I'm looking at it, and I'm going to say that we spent less than $22,000 on it. That's remarkable. I, I just, I don't know how you did it, honestly. <laughs> well, there's, you know, I mean, I can tell that there's a lot of techniques there that are, you know, not to, not to belittle the, the design aspects no, no, of anything, ahead. but, but there are definitely some techniques where I can see, okay, they, they're, they're making it look more expensive than it is with this and that and that. But still, oh. even, even at that level, I think it looks I don't know where that, I don't know. Like, it seems like you'd spend $22,000 on catering <laughs> for a movie well, like that. Well, no, I, yeah, I mean, so. catering was probably a better part of a thousand bucks. On, yeah. You know, again, it really helps to have good friends. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have a friend who has, he has a little soundstage okay. in Allentown, right. Pennsylvania. James, Joe Chapman, he's got uh, some spaceship sets. Mm-hmm. And he's got some other things and we made a deal with him that we could, you know, go out there and shoot at his place. Yeah. I'm friends with an extremely talented visual effects artist mm -hmm. named Ian Hubert, who uh, 
lives there in Washington State. Mm-hmm. He gave us a, a a pretty good deal. Also, he works extraordinarily quickly. Mm-hmm. We had a it, it's a it's a decent script. It's a very yep. good script. Well, yep. I, I I didn't mean to say it in a, in a I don't mean to say it in a belittling way. Well, yeah, it's quite a good script. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Niles wrote that, and he's a friend actually of Joe Chapman's. Like we just there's a rock field. The a, a large portion of the movie uh, takes place in what looks like these completely post-apocalyptic landscapes. Yeah. Yep. And uh, they happen to just be places near Joe's house that he yeah. knew about. Yeah. And so we just, you know. Well, you made it work. <laughs> you made it work somehow. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, it, it. but again, you know, having people around you who actually are pro you. <laughs> yeah. You know, like if you think about all the things that you could offer somebody else, mm-hmm. well, other people have those things for you. A lot of that, you know, not to get like too woo and too hippy dippy about it, but just my experience doing this with theater is that the kind of positive energy that you give out really does come back tenfold. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really does come back to you. And yeah, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get a distribution deal where somebody's going to give you several million dollars and you can get a home in the Hollywood Hills. In fact, you might not get anything at all, but you might finish a movie and be proud of showing it and yep. it be on Amazon Prime. Yep. Do, do you do you ever with your films? Do you ever get the chance to enjoy these films with an audience? Uh, um, we try to have a, uh, a a public screening. Okay. Usually at a bar in Brooklyn. Oh, great. Okay. Um, which is really the place. A, a bar on Sunday afternoon in Brooklyn is the place to see a low budget science fiction movie. Yeah. Because that's that's always a, a good time. Yeah. So yeah. So we always try to. Uh, yeah. Obviously, the last few years have just yeah yeah been miserable. But that that is that is always a a, a good time. And boy, it really helps sometimes to watch other people watching the movie. Absolutely. It's to me as a filmmaker, it's such an important part of filmmaking. Like I can't, I can't call a film finished until it's been seen by other people and I've seen what their reaction is and gotten some feedback and that kind of thing. Like it's just, just I just don't have the objectivity to be able to judge. Oh, nobody editorial, does. right? You know, absolutely like, nobody does. Uh, yeah. This is why in theater, you have no idea what you're doing until you get a show up on its feet in yeah. front of an audience. And then the weird thing is that it's not even necessarily the audience's reactions to it. If you're watching it just in the audience, yeah. you're watching it as a different experience for some reason that I don't know why, but totally. you can tell instantly, oh, that line has to get cut. Yep. This thing has to go longer. Yeah. You might have heard that line working. a thousand times in rehearsal, but you oh, yeah. never, never hear it the way that you hear it when you see it with an audience or, you know, and film is, yeah. like, you know, Absolutely. that shot or that cut or that, you know, cue, yeah. that music cue or whatever. Like, like there's just a thousand different ways that you just, yeah. When you see it with an audience, it's like, it becomes, it's just, it's like, it's cl- the clothes are coming off or something. You just see it in a whole oh, yeah. new way. So yeah, it's amazing oh. how that, how that works. Uh, and a little frustrating because you know that all of those decisions that you're making before you get to an audience are all sort of like, in a way they're, you know, they're, you have to do them, but they're, 
you know, the, the, half of them could get thrown out the window as soon as you see oh, the yeah. audience and, and re-see it in that way. So, yeah. yeah. I was very excited when Alien Uprising, yeah. uh, which was written by uh, Josh James, who yeah. has actually uh, gone on to write a, like a, a Van Damme movie. But um, in that movie, there is a, there's a character who kind of gets written off early and so you forget that she's still on the spaceship when the bad guy gets back to the spaceship and he's just going to launch the spaceship and and ditch everybody. Uh-huh. And that character comes back and kills the bad guy. Right. And it actually got like some applause. <laughs> and I had been with this movie for so long by that point. I just, I, you know, it's like, oh yeah. yeah. And then she does, she does yep. this. And I'm like, oh, oh, right. This is actually dramatically a really big deal. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So that, boy, that's really, that is an important thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think that's special, uh, you know, which is why I asked the question about seeing it with an audience is uh, it, it's hard these days, I think, to make movies because they're, because the expectation is that they go straight to streaming and you, you never get to see films with an audience. Um, it, 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 that's really hard as a filmmaker to be able to give up on that experience, which, you know, maybe it was always a limited experience. There's not that many people looking at their films played in theaters, no matter what era you're in. But uh, especially now, it just seems like so hard to to be able to look forward to that. I think the only silver lining that but it costs money is film festivals, you know, uh, you know, getting yeah. into these film festivals, there's great, there are some great film festivals that may have no distribution opportunities, sales opportunities, whatever, but they have dedicated loyal audiences that you can go to and, you know, have your film screen and experience that. Um, if you're willing to shell out application fees and travel fees and hotel fees and all that stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I, so. I think just, you know, find a, a nice bar in Portland yeah. and yeah. Uh, yeah. just, you know, show it on a, Sunday afternoon when uh, I know there's going to be some game going on in the front of the bar, but <laughs> the back of the bar is going to be your cast and crew and you know yeah. friends and family, and, and you yeah. get to actually watch things. Yeah, and that that's always that's just always a good time. Yeah, makes sense. So yeah, so we've we've uh, taken a lot of time here, but it's been a great conversation. Uh, I just want to sure. ask before we go if you have any anything else that you want to cover, anything that we didn't talk about that you think is important to talk about. Uh, I'll give you a chance to do that. I can't really think of anything. I, I, yeah. I think we pretty much <laughs> we covered a lot of good territory. <laughs> I can't overexpress enough how important it is to surround yourself with people who actually want to see you succeed. Yep. And try to enjoy what you're doing today more than how it's going to work out in the future. Cause you might get lucky yep. and, and make some money or, you know, you might just get lucky and, you know, fall in love. I don't know. Like yeah. whatever, <laughs> Whatever happens. Whatever works for you. Right. Just but enjoy the process. It it really is important. Uh, I, I remember many, many years ago, I was playing in a rock band when I was very young. And I'm on stage at this really dive club in Dover, New Jersey. And I was thinking to myself, why am I so miserable? I should really be enjoying this. Mm-hmm. And I realized then, like it was, it was enough of a revelation that I remember it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember just thinking, "Wow, I this should be the fun part." Yeah, yeah. And it was. I'm just going to enjoy this. Yeah. <laughs> Why wasn't it the fun part at the time? Oh, because I was just... the leader of the band, and I saw so I was in charge of everything, and okay. I was trying to make sure that nothing was going to 
collapse. You stressed out about all of the details and all all the practical things and just not letting that, all of that stuff go and just enjoy that creative moment. Yeah. 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 yeah, and that that's so easy to do in filmmaking, right? Because oh those logistical details, you know, factor hundred times that. There's so many logistical details, and I think to a certain extent, as a filmmaker, you have to love those details too. You can't oh, you just do. love. Yeah. You can't just love the creative process. You have to love the logistical process because it's oh, such yeah. a huge percentage of the work that you have to do as a filmmaker. Uh, so many little things to do to to deal with, you know. So you, you know, I definitely do. I love that nitty gritty stuff. I love those just tiny little decisions that you have to make all the all the time i couldn't do it i think if i didn't love that aspect of it you know oh yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> so uh and, and then finally uh is there any anything you know if people want to contact you for whatever reason or you have anything you want to plug uh feel free to go ahead and do so oh uh, well i'm i'm right in a plugless stage because uh, <laughs> i can't i I can't really plug my PhD research because that's right. kind of silly. <laughs> yeah. But Pandora Machine is the name of my company. I'm, you know, on yep. Mast- Mastodon, but you don't really need to follow me. I just post <laughs> nonsense. Um, yeah, sometimes but, nonsense is fun, though, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I get you. Uh, but Pandora Machine, and if people want to watch any any of your movies, that's a good way to get to them. Yeah, they're they're around. They're um, most or many of them are are on Amazon, mm-hmm. either Prime or in physical form somewhere. Right. right. And uh, yeah. Okay. Great. Well, that's been really fun talking to you. Um, oh, you know, thank you for I, having I, me. It's it's a you know definitely been one of my one of my interviews that has. Uh, not focused kind of directly on distribution so much, um, but just kind of the whole world of filmmaking and, and just because I have such bad news about no, distribution. No, no. Well, it's yeah, and then that's that's fine. Like it's that there's plenty of I've had plenty of other interviews where, where the focus is on distribution, but the news is equally bad. You know, so that's a message <laughs> that's coming clear, and I think it's because of that that it's good to sort of talk about some of these other issues and and just you know just filmmaking and what it's like to 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 make films in in this day and age and it's a lot of fun the, yeah you know and, like you know, you, right. the best part of it is watching people transform a script into an actual scene is really one of the most revelatory experiences yeah it's just amazing yeah yeah bringing an idea to life just totally oh. investing it with vigor and and, yeah. and and existence, like real physical, tangible existence. Yeah. I, oh, I, yeah. I totally get you on that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, that's, it's, that's the high that you're chasing. <laughs> yep. Yep. And I think that's, that's gotta be the, you know, I'll, I'll say it again, but that's gotta be the high that you chase the, the, the process oh, yeah. and not yeah, the absolutely. final result, not the money, anything like that. Don't do it. If, if that's the, if you're chasing money, don't do it. Go yeah, if, you're chasing money, don't do it. <laughs> if, if you want to make a perfect movie, feel good about making something that's less than perfect yeah. and using it as a learning experience to make your next one. Yeah. Which is no maybe doubt. a good reason to not spend too much money on yep. your movie too. <laughs> yeah. Find, find a way to do what you can with what you got. I think, Yeah. You yeah. Know, like there's always, always new ways to make movies that don't cost a, a huge amount of money. So especially yeah. now. So, yeah. Yep. Cool. All right. Anything else? I'll stop recording unless you got anything else you want to add. Well, thanks for having me. No, that's great. All right. That's all for today. Thanks, everybody, for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate and or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever. Uh, even though this was episode 10, uh, I think you can say that I'm still just starting out, so I can use all the help I could get to grow the show and reach a wider audience of independent filmmakers and others who just want to try to understand this crazy, crazy world of independent film distribution. Also, I'd love to hear your feedback, positive, negative, whatever, comments, questions, suggestions. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Just Screen It. My Instagram is Just Screen It Podcast, or you can email me at Just Screen It at DarkRosePictures.com. And by the way, darkrosepictures.com is my in-progress website for my feature and my other projects, uh, but it's not really up yet, just a coming soon banner right now, but this full site is coming very, very soon. And you know what? I mean it this time. <laughs> uh, I know I've been saying that as my outro for many, many weeks now, uh, but I really, truly am at the cusp of launching this website that I've been working on myself uh, for many, many months. Uh, so if you want to follow my work, you will be able to very soon. Um, in, in fact, by the time you listen to this podcast, it might be out. So check it out, darkrosepictures.com. Uh, anyway, enough of my own self-promotion. That is truly all for now. I want to thank Jesse Browder for his work in editing this podcast. I want to thank Andrew Belware for being such a great guest. Uh, and I have lots more great guests lined up in the coming weeks talking all things indie distribution. I'll be putting an episode up about once a week for the foreseeable future. So stay tuned. And thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.